All right, let me pray for us and we'll begin. Our Father, I thank you uh, that you love us uh, so much that you came to live among us uh, to, uh, to take our sin on yourself, to go to the cross, to take the penalty for that sin. I thank you, Father, that you have given us new life by your Son uh, in his righteousness, that in him we can have new life. I thank you that we can uh, gather this morning to learn about Jesus, and I pray that you would help us as we study these things, uh, that it would be honoring and glorifying to you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're finishing up with our study uh, today, and I need to run through this fairly quickly because I was only supposed to do four weeks on who is Jesus, and so I'm bleeding into week five. Um, but we're, we need to finish up asking the question, who is Jesus? And yes, Yes, he did make us. That's right. Because he's God. That's right. Jesus is God. And so that's one of the things that Jesus said. He says he's the son of God. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. Uh, And then we ask the question, you know, why did Jesus come? Why did he come to earth? Uh, And there's lots of different answers that have been given throughout the ages. And we've been looking at some of those answers. But primarily because Jesus is God, because uh, of the way that he refers to himself and he presents himself to us. We go to his word and we look at uh, what he says about himself and why he came. And uh, that's what we covered last week. We went through those different scriptures in the gospel of Matthew that show us all these different reasons why he came. And so I just want to run over those reasons. Why did Jesus come? Um, he came to preach repentance for the kingdom of God was here. And that's what the term at hand means. The kingdom of God is here because Jesus was here. He was in the flesh because he's God. His kingdom was here. And he said, you need to repent. Why? Because God is here. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, We saw that he came to fulfill the law's demand. Uh, God gave us the law. Romans chapter 1, chapters 1 through 3 actually says that uh, there are a variety of ways to look at the law, all of them ultimately, either you have the law of God or you have the law of God written on your heart because you're made in his image, um, or, uh, you know, or you have a law that you have created for yourself, in which case it's a reflection on the law of God. In any of those three circumstances, uh, there's a demand that the law places on you. And that demand, even if it's one that you create in your own mind, that demand is not something you can live up to. And Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law's demand. Not to abolish the law, not to get rid of the law, not to allow any, you to live any way that you want to, but to actually fulfill the law. Uh, then he said he came to call sinners to himself. Um, because of the law's demand, because we are sinners due to the law's um, standard and our inability to live up to that, he says, I've come to call sinners to myself. If you've broken the law, you are a sinner. And he says, and I've, that's why I've come. I've come for sinners. Then interestingly, he says he did not come to bring peace, but he came to bring the sword. Um, And that kind of should blow our expectations out of the water, generally speaking, because of the way that people understand who Jesus is and why he came, especially in in modern contemporary circles where we're presented with a Jesus that is always kind, always friendly, always welcoming, always um, 
gentle, uh, and, and he is all of those things, but we also see Jesus saying, uh, I haven't come to simply put up with your ideas about who I am. I've come to demand your complete allegiance. And if you're not willing to bow the knee to who I am, then I've come to bring a sword. So it kind of shocks us in our modern sensibilities whenever we hear that. Um, he also says he came to give rest to the weary. To those who are tired and weary, he says, I've come to give you rest. Rest for your soul. That's why he came. And then he says he came to suffer and to die and to be raised from the dead. That he has, actually in, in that passage in Matthew 16, Jesus says, I must suffer and die and be raised from the dead. He must do it. That, that is not optional. Jesus' coming primary, primarily was for the going to the cross, the suffering, the death, the painful and shameful death on the cross for the sake of his people. He must do it. Um, there's a lot of folks that uh, treat the cross as an accident like it wasn't supposed to happen, they treat the cross as if it was just another form of injustice. Uh, but on the cross, you see actually, um, you see the highest form of justice happening there on the cross because God is pouring out just wrath for us on the willing sacrifice Jesus Christ. So he says, I must go to the cross. And then he says, he came to serve by giving his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. He came to serve the people of God by giving his life as a ransom for many. Um, all right. Anything shocking about that? Any, any of that challenge the way that you typically think about why Jesus came? Any questions or comments about those things? Okay. Um, just, in, in some just to give you some categories to think through, um, sometimes we'll use this language of Jesus and his person and his work. And um, sometimes I'll say that and I won't define what I mean by that. Jesus and his person and his work. And that is a... Uh, traditional systematic division or categories that we use to identify and explain who Jesus is. Um, they're theological categories. So Jesus in his person and his work. That's what we looked at the first couple of weeks. Who is Jesus? We asked, who is Jesus in his person? And he is God in the flesh. That's what we looked at. And then these last couple of weeks in his work. What did he come to do? Okay. What did he come to do? Um, now, given this, given Jesus' answer about why he came, um, there, that, that confronts the way that we typically think about Jesus uh, because he didn't come to do some other things. What did he not come to do? This is in conclusion. Um, Jesus did not come primarily to make us feel good. Okay? He did not come to make us feel good. There was a, a Christian sociologist, I can't remember his name right now, but he, term, he coined the term uh, for what happens in a lot of Christian circles, especially in the United States, 
called um, therapeutic moral deism. Therapeutic moral deism, or yeah, moral therapeutic deism. And, and he says this, that, uh, that is the gospel that is being preached in a lot of churches today. So you break down those three words, um, therapeutic, essentially that we are looking for therapy um, to help us get through some hard time that we're having, um, something to take the basic building blocks of who we are and then just make us a little bit better. Therapeutic. Um, self-help, in other words. Moralistic, meaning we get a lot of, um, uh, a lot of, or the gospel presentation a lot of times is about what we can do to make ourselves better or what we, we, what we need to do better. And then deism is this uh, view of God that says he's not engaged in the world, he's not personally engaged with us, he's out there somewhere, and we know that he exists, but he doesn't have anything to do with us. And, the, and so this sociologist said that that's the gospel that's being preached a lot of times in, in, in churches. Um, and the point is that he made is that um, that's not ultimately the gospel, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ and why he came isn't about making us feel better about ourselves. As a matter of fact, a lot of times if you hear the gospel, you are going to feel worse about yourself um, because that's the nature of sin. And that's how bad sin is. In terms of who God is in his holiness, in his righteousness, and your sin being cosmic treason against the holy and righteous God, you need to understand that you should feel bad about that. And there are eternal consequences to that. Okay, um, You don't just need therapy when it comes to God. Therapy is great. Therapy is wonderful. We all could use therapy. We all need counsel. There's a lot of places in the Bible where it talks about getting wise counsel and listening to wise counsel. And that's wonderful. But we're talking about why Jesus came. Jesus did not primarily come to fix the little broken things that are inside of us. He came to make us new. He came to give us new hearts, to regenerate us, to give us the rebirth. That's why he came. Um, and so... He didn't, make us come to, he didn't come to make us feel good. And this is one of those things, that coming to Jesus and understanding that if you're in Jesus, not all of your problems are going to be fixed. I wish it were the case that I could promise you that if you're a Christian and if you live long enough as a Christian, that all of your problems are going to be fixed. The reality is that the longer you live as a Christian, more than likely you're going to grow and you're you're going to grow deeper in your understanding of just how messed up you actually are and just how gracious God is to you to put up with you as you are deeply, deeply sinful and deeply, deeply um, treasonous against him on a daily basis. I use this as an example. I have um, uh, an aunt... Um, she died a couple of years ago. My Aunt Dutes, I don't know how she got that name, Aunt Dutes. Uh, when she was 92 or 93 years old, I remember sitting down with her and um, asking her, um, you know, asking her about her Christian life. She was deeply, uh, deeply committed to Christ. And um, 
and I just asked her to kind of explain what she was, how she thought about Jesus after being a believer for so many years. Her husband died when she was um, in her 30s, I believe, and she didn't remarry. She stayed alone, uh, relatively uh, poor, living in Crowley, Louisiana, and um, (laughs) just one example. She She was blind, living by herself, and some people broke into her house. Uh, and, and she prayed for them, and she said, I don't know who you are, as they were rummaging through all of her stuff, and she said, but I, I'm praying for you. Um, just to give an example of how, how much she believed in Christ and how much she trusted in Him. Um, anyway, so, you know, explain the Christian life, explain what you're going through, and she said, you know, after 92, 93 years, I cannot believe that Jesus puts up with me day by day by day. And I'm like, this sweet, frail, older lady, 92 years old. And I was like, well, Aunt Dutes, I mean, you can't sin that big, can you? <laughs> and she said, you, don't have, you have no idea about how dark my heart is. Right? That's what we're talking about. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came not to make us feel good, not to solve all of our problems. As a matter of fact, again, most... <laughs> A lot of times as a Christian, our problems are magnified (laughs) Um, because now all of a sudden we got Satan and the world hating us. (laughs) Um, But he came to do something even greater. He came to give his life for ours so that our life uh, can be hidden in him so that we can stand before God uh, and have absolute security in him. And so, yeah, temporarily in this life, um, he says, you know, I came not to bring peace, but a sword. And there's going to be divisions and there's going to be hardship. But I've accomplished something for you that you can't accomplish for yourself. Um, So why did Jesus come? He came to judge sin. And he did that in his own death. On the cross, you see our sin being judged. Uh, and, And... we saw this in the Old Testament when God would show up in these theophanies, that, um, that God would show up and then he would come to confront sin. And so when God shows up in the New Testament, well, does he confront sin? He absolutely does. He does it uh, by confronting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders. He does it with uh, the woman at the well. In John chapter 4, when he confronts her in her adultery and her immoral life. But ultimately, he goes to the cross as a way to confront sin and judgment. But there, instead of him meeting out judgment, he's receiving judgment. And he is facing the same kind of judgment that he brought on Sodom and Gomorrah. He's facing the same kind of judgment that he brought all through those times in the Old Testament whenever whole peoples were being wiped out for their sin, he is receiving that judgment. Um, and that's something, whenever you're, you're, we're talking about Jesus on the cross, one of the things that, um, and ultimately one reason why um, things like movies and TV shows and all of this struggle to capture ultimately what's happening with Jesus on the cross um, is that What you cannot see on the cross is the eternal judgment that Jesus is facing. And you have this three-hour window when all of the sins of his people 
are being poured out on Jesus. Where, Jesus, or where God the Father is literally like pouring down the cup of his wrath all over his son. And you can't visualize it. And so like any, any attempt to show that visually fails ultimately. But that's why Jesus came. He came to drink the wrath of God the Father for us. That's why he came. Um, he also came to restore, to restore his people. And you see that in the Old Testament theophanies when God would show up. He came to restore people by confronting sin. But here, how does Jesus restore his people? He restores his people by taking their sin on himself and ultimately giving them new life. And then Jesus comes uh, to protect the promise. Uh, I didn't have a lot of time to flesh this out, but in a lot of those instances, you can take the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, example in Genesis chapter 19. The big threat there is that Sodom and Gomorrah's wickedness are beginning to influence the people of God. And you have Abraham and, Abraham and Sarah living just a slight difference away. Lot and his family living within Sodom and Gomorrah. And the immorality of Sodom and Gomorrah is beginning to influence that little clan of people. So what does God do to protect the seed? He comes in and he destroys that immorality. He, he takes care of that immorality for the sake of, of making sure that the seed would continue through his promised people. You saw that in Genesis chapter 6. You saw that with the Tower of Babel. And at various places in the Old Testament, you see God protecting his, the promise by doing these things. And that's what he does. Ultimately, he protects the promise, um, the promise of eternal life through his son by raising Jesus Christ from the dead on the third day through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so why did Jesus come? That's what he came to do. That's why he came. Um, any questions or comments about that? While you're thinking of a question, Amy, can I get you to help me? Can you pull up the next um, slide on there? What is the Bible? The next, you got to get out a keynote and go bring up the next one. It should already be pulled up. Any questions? Any questions? All right. Um, if at any point you have any questions, feel free to ask. Um, as I jump into this, uh, the next uh, uh, series of things that we're going to talk about, ask a question about Jesus at any point. Um, I'll remind you that I said I love... Um, there you go, that's good. Um, I love rabbit trails. I love going down the rabbit holes. Um, I'll be happy to do that. Um, and Brent isn't here today, so, you know... We can go, if you have a rabbit hole you want to go down, we can go down your rabbit hole. Okay, thanks, Amy, for doing that. We're going to begin uh, asking the question right now, what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Again, we're exploring Christianity. We're, we're exploring um, the, the basics of Christianity because we never need to leave the basics. And we need to be constantly reminded about uh, the nature of Christianity and what are, what are the basics of Christianity. In light of that, there's two books that I want to recommend to you. One of them is C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, 
um, where he, he kind of strips down the basics of Christianity and, and gets to the heart of it. And I think he does a good job there. Not all of it's great, but most of it's great. And those are a series of radio interviews that were transcribed and put into a book format. So Mere Christianity. And then also John Stott's Basic Christianity. Um, John Stott, Anglican minister, no related to, not related to the Stotts here that I'm aware of. Any relation? So... Um, but John Stott's basic Christianity is also an excellent resource for those things. Um, so anyway, we're asking the question, what is the Bible? There's some who would have thought, who think that I should have dealt with this question before I asked the question, who is Jesus? Um, and there's some people that say, you know, you got you to gotta deal with who is Jesus before you talk about the Bible. Um, I'm a both and guy. I think I could have done it either way. Um, but asking this question and addressing this question is probably the more important question for modern people today. So when I say modern people, I mean um, people in this room, sure, but most of you probably have worked these things out already. So I'm trying to give you, if you have worked these things out, I'm trying to give you tools to use so that you can have discussions with your neighbors, with your coworkers, um, because the question of authority uh, is really the question that we need to address. And I think it's, it's the modern question of who has authority to tell us what we should believe. And that's ultimately what we're asking with, um, uh, with ask, when we ask this question, what is the Bible? Um, can you all see that up there? You probably can't. Okay. So this is... Uh, it's a picture of um, the wilderness of Israel. It's a picture of the mountainous area where the, I think it's the, I can't, I can never say it quite right, but the Kurman, Kurman sect of people lived. It's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. And so you see here that there, uh, there's these sheer cliffs and they dug caves out of these sheer cliffs and they would live inside of these caves and study their scrolls and study their, their Bibles and the Word of God, trying to determine when the Messiah would come. And this is where, again, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Um, the Dead Sea Scrolls are this massive collection of ancient writings. Most of them were, uh, were biblical texts that were preserved really well. Uh, I believe they were found in the 1930s. Um, significant archaeological find. And so we're going to talk more about that as we go on uh, because of the significance of that find, especially the significance of finding the Isaiah scroll, what's called the, or the Great Isaiah Scroll. Um, and the Great Isaiah Scroll is a completely preserved um, scroll from about this, the third, they think it's either the third or second century BC that contains the entire um, script of the book of Isaiah in Hebrew. Very significant archaeological find um, from, from that time. And we'll talk about the significance of that. What I want to do in asking the question is, what is the Bible? Um, I want to deal with uh, the nature of revelation and how, uh, how revelation works and how we can, you know, what kind of revelation we can trust. I want to deal with um, some of the basic facts regarding the Bible and and also, I want to deal with, ultimately, you know, how does the Bible talk about itself? How does the Bible tell us what it's here to do? So we're going to deal with all of those things. But uh, to begin, 
Um, and you should have a sheet. This is on the new sheet back there if you haven't gotten one. Um, I want to deal with, and we need to deal with, the nature of revelation. What is revelation? Who wants to venture an answer? What is revelation? What is it? But you did, you, you made the biggest faux pas in the book. You used the word reveal in the definition of revelation. You're right, of course. Revelation is something that is revealed, so revealed, so good job. Um, it's an opening of the eyes. It's an enlightening. It's, it's, yeah, so that's what revelation is. Uh, and I think this is actually one of the, the biggest issues, the issue of revelation is one of the biggest issues that we need to address in our modern world. Because um, uh, it's really, uh, the nature of revelation is asking the question, how do we know what we know? What's the basis of our knowledge for anything? And the nature of revelation really gets to the heart of that. How do we know what we know? Um, so let's deal a little bit and talk a little bit about revelation. Um, this gets to the question of um, who gets to tell us what is true? Can you all see that up there? True. Who gets to tell us what is true? T-R-U-E. T-R-U-E. Um, and I put it in capital letters there. Um, because if you listen to people talk today, they'll talk about the nature of truth. They'll talk about the nature of, of you know, the truth. But oftentimes they're using the word truth in a way that I'm using it in, in a different way. Um, because many modern ideas uh, tell us that um, this is the Enlightenment uh, in modernism, uh, the Enlightenment era that essentially went from uh, the modern era from the, the 16th century uh, until I would say the, the middle of the 20th century. Um, and then the Enlightenment era that kind of came in the middle of that. Um, in those time, at that time, it said ultimately reason determines truth. That our rationality determines what is true. And the very height of that came in, uh, in and through the scientific revolution. That in and through empirical data, in and through testing and uh, the things that we can we can uh, see, by, see or taste or touch or any of those things using our senses that that empirical data ultimately is what is true, is the true truth, okay? Um, that determines what is the truth. Um, then, uh, you know, and we're living in this time now in postmodernism after World War II, uh, Ultimately, World, Wars, World War One and Two showed the emptiness of the modernist idea, and so that has led people to rejecting a lot of uh, a lot of modernism, um, and that's where we are today. Where there's there's no such thing as truth, you know, with a big capital T R U T H, but there's truth with a little t, little truth, and here's what that means. Um, there's a priority of the in individual. Um, that everyone can decide their own truth. You hear that today at all? <laughs> I 
I mean, if you turn on the TV, ultimately, that's what you're being presented with. There's no such thing as this big, grand, objective truth that's out there. There's only this little truth that every individual can decide for themselves what is the truth. Um, and, um, and, you know, that's largely the world in which we're living in today. Um, in this postmodern world. Um, but you also have some folks that are presenting the priority of the collective, that every truth can decide their own truth. So it kind of takes the individual and it puts the individual within a collective. And then um, within that collective, you can, the collective gets to decide which truth for themselves. But ultimately, that's not an objective truth that can be uh, established over other groups. So either the individual gets to decide truth for himself or the collective gets to decide truth for himself. But there's no such thing as ultimate truth, objective truth that's out there. Um, those are some of the, the common ideas that we're dealing with um, today. Um, what I'm about to do is I'm about to jump into the more traditional ideas of truth um, related to Revelation. Uh, but what I want to do is give you, and you're not going to be able to see these probably, um, I'm going to put three pictures up there um, to show you. Yeah, you really can't see this. It's fascinating. Can, y'all, can anybody see what those are? Anybody at all? It looks like a pyramid. Um, they're sticks. What? Maypoles. That's right. See, the one over here. Okay, well, let me, let me say, okay. Um, this one down here that on the bottom right is a Maypole celebration from, um, from Poland. Uh, massive celebration from Poland. Uh, the one on the top left is a Maypole celebration from somewhere in the Scandinavian uh, countries. Uh, and then this is what's really fascinating the Maypole celebration that's all the way on the right is uh, from Mongolia. Mongolia. So um, thousands and thousands of miles away from the places where we typically think of the Maypole celebration being originated. Uh, a lot of folks are saying that the Maypole celebrate. I'll, I'll get to why this is important for us in a minute. <laughs> uh, um, but the Maypole celebration, they say, was started in the, in the Roman Empire about 2,000 years ago. Um, and it spread to all of these different places. Um, as far as we know, old, the Roman religion never made it all the way to Mongolia. <laughs> um, and, yeah, this is... My, my point in saying this is that throughout the centuries and throughout cultures, throughout... Um, Throughout history, the history of mankind, mankind has ultimately seen um, truth as revealed from God in various ways. Um, These are all pagan forms and expressions of truth. The Maypole dance, and I know it's something that, like I remember doing it as a kid uh, in elementary school. The Maypole dance ultimately is a fertility dance. Um, that's, that's what it is. It's a fertility dance. You have uh, the fertility pole that's erected, and then girls 
Typically girls, sometimes pairs of boys and girls that wrap the, the ribbon around the pole. And this is something, and the reason why I put all three of these up here is that these are things that are celebrated by pagan religions throughout all of the world because they have a similar idea about where truth comes from. Uh, and you see this, you see this, these sorts of things happening in places like um, the Mayan Empire and the Mayan, the Mayan civilization in, uh, in Central and South America. Um, similar ideas about what God is saying to us and how God is communicating to us. You see fertility, um, the fertility gods and the different gods that give us various things. Um, and it isn't until the modern era where you see these things starting to be disbelieved. But it's still, in some places, these are the things that are believed. Why? Because in traditional cultures, in traditional um, areas, um, in traditional re religions, they have very similar ideas about where we get truth. And so, um, where do we get truth? Ultimately, in pagan religions, uh, you see that um, nature determines what is true. Nature determines what is true. Um, Again, this is in old pagan religions. This is in um, pantheism, which is the re religion that accepts a variety of different uh, um, uh, gods and a variety of, or basically that God is in everything and through everything. Um, again, these are the traditional ideas. Where do we get truth? Well, nature determines truth for us. Nature gives us the truth. And that's ultimately what you see as an expression in the Maypole dance and in a lot of ancient uh, pagan uh, celebrations. Uh, they're worshiping nature. Um, um, okay, so any questions or comments about that? All right, uh, you also see in, uh, in some traditional cultures that the divine determines the truth. That the divine tells us what is true. But the divine tells us what is true through mediation, primarily of the royal family or the king or the queen. Um, and you see this, again, this is in almost every culture um, prior to the modern era where you saw that the, it was believed that the king was God's representative or the God's representative on earth. And it was through that king that truth was given to us that truth was determined. Um, it's really um, what's fascinating is that modernism rejected these ideas in favor of the rational, in favor of um, science, in favor of 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 us, <laughs> um, and said those things are superstitious and those things aren't true. Um, and then in postmodernism, you saw a rejection of of, of a lot of this, the, the idea that there was any kind of objective truth. And in the vacuum of that, what are people going to now? <laughs> what are people doing? People are returning back to paganism. What we would expect and what we've been told is that with the, with the Enlightenment era, with the rise of scientific knowledge and scientific understanding, is that people are going to need the ideas uh, or traditional ideas less and less. You're not going to need God or a God to give you information or to tell you things. Um, what you're going to ultimately do is you're going to trust yourself more. But that hasn't happened. 
because ultimately we know that we're not trustworthy. And so people today, and this is what's happening whenever you hear the the statistics and the reports that so many young people are leaving the church. They're not leaving the church primarily for no religion at all. And people today are not less religious than they ever have been. People today are actually more religious than they have been. The problem is they're going to these ancient forms of religion. Um, They're... It's amazing. I remember uh, people talking about, you know, the horoscope and looking at their horoscopes and that sort of thing, trying to figure out what their life and determine their life and all these things through a horoscope in the newspaper, right? <laughs> the newspaper doesn't get anything right about anything except when it comes to that horoscope, and now they're going to get your life right, you know. Um, and I kind of thought that would go away. It's fascinating that that stuff is more popular today than it was 40 years ago when I was a kid. It's not going away. People are actually going back to these things. And the reason why I bring this up is because ultimately all of us are looking at some kind of authority to give us the truth, to give us meaning. There's not anyone... Oh, I need to... Let me put those up there. So, um, sorry, many traditional societies, king or uh, the god gives you the truth. Everyone is looking to something to give you, to be an authority, to give you revelation. Um, That's ubiquitous throughout all of human history. (laughs) You can't get away from it. There's never been anyone who is neutral on this idea. Even if somebody claims to be neutral on this, even if someone claims to not have any authority, any greater, higher power, they're lying to you, they are not self-aware, don't listen to that person. (laughs) Because they're listening to something other than themselves to give them the truth. The question that we need to ask is, where where should we go for the truth? Um, And that's why I want to go to to this. This is, uh, you can't see that, but this is the Apostle Paul, a great uh, famous picture of the Apostle Paul. Um, And the way that the artist captures light here. Um, he's showing light on, on one part of the Apostle Paul and, and then light on the words that are being written as a way to capture the idea that we're going to talk about that revelation comes from one place, that revelation comes from God through the Holy Spirit, through the authors that wrote down the Bible. Um, this is the biblical idea of where truth comes from. The biblical idea is that there's two forms of revelation. Uh, the first one is general revelation, that there, are, that, that there is a general revelation that we can receive from nature, that we can know certain things given uh, are from nature. And, um, and I need to put this up here. Um, from nature and from reason. Um, and the Bible talks about this very clearly. Again, Romans chapter 1 deals with this, that there are things that we can know because of what nature actually teaches us. Um, it's not just there in, in Romans 1, it's other places. But um, there, are, there are things that we can know. We can look at nature... We can use the scientific method. We can use our rationality. And we can know certain things. Uh, Why? Because God has made us in his image. We are the only creatures that he made in his image that can know these things. So can we go to nature to find out something? Absolutely. Um, Can you use your mind 
in order to have uh, to to get to the truth. Absolutely, on many things you can do that, and praise God for it because you see the example of that in the world in which we live. We are not surrounded oftentimes by people that don't know anything, although it seems like that at times. We are actually surrounded by people that are using their minds in order to get to the truth, and they live as if there is objective truth that's out there. Why? Because they are made in the image of God, and they're using reason and nature to, to get to that point. Um, there is general revelation, and the Bible teaches us that there is such thing as general revelation. Um, However, general revelation is insufficient to give us all of the information that we need. Um, general revelation cannot teach us about um, the essential truths about who God is. Um, sometimes you'll... Let's talk about just Christians for a moment. You'll have Christians who will say things like... Um, I think it's safe to say this now. Hunting season is mostly over, so I can say this now. Um, you'll have people, especially hunters, no offense to hunters in here, but hunters, hunters will say things like, I'll just get my gun and I'll go get in my deer stand and I'll just sit with God in my deer stand. I don't need to hear from God any other way. I just hear from God in my, in my deer stand. And so while I'm sitting there in my deer stand and I hear nature you know, making its sounds and nature doing its thing, I, I just get a, a sense of who God is. And that's great, and that's wonderful. Um, but do you know what the nature of nature is? Do you know what nature is like? Have you ever considered what nature is ultimately like? Nature is trying to kill us. <laughs> Around every turn, anything that you do, nature is trying to kill you. <laughs> and that's what nature is like. Ultimately... It is, in nature, survival of the fittest. I mean, I, you know, and I just laugh at, at hunters that think, well, I'm just going to go out to, in nature with my gun because <laughs> I need some kind of protection or I need to kill something. That's the nature of nature. Um, nature can teach you certain things, but ultimately, nature will not show you the love of God and the grace of God because there is no grace in nature. There's no mercy in nature. There is kill or be killed. So general revelation is insufficient to give us all of the knowledge that we need. So we need something else. What's that something else? Stay tuned. Come back next week. We'll get to that next week.